0: Welcome to another episode of Are You Fucking Shitting Me? I'm April. And I'm Rachel. How you doing, Rachel? I'm doing all right. I'm enjoying the sunshine, the summer. Happy it's finally here. So, Rachel, I have an update on our last episode. Uh,
1: you do? On the one with Jason's election? Yep, he won. Hey,
0: congratulations, Jason. Yeah, and uh, in fact, most of his slate won. Okay, so that means most of the progressive slate. Not the super, super, super left, but the very, very left. Yeah, yeah. Most of the progressive
1: slate won. So so it was a good thing that there was a a re-election because more of their people won. So anyway, so that's awesome.
0: That's really cool. Yeah.
1: So now on to this week's episode. Rachel, you know I'm a huge fan of true crime. Um, True crime TV shows and podcasts. Uh, I love The Jinx, Making a Murderer. The Keepers is a really good one if you haven't seen that, Staircase. Um, and there's so many true crime podcasts, Serial, of course, Dirty John is probably my absolute favorite, Crime Junkie is a newer one, they just got voted Best New Podcast of 2018, I think, in Rolling Stone, um, and then there's My Favorite Murder, which is uh, hosted by Karen Kilgariff, who's a comedian, and Georgia Hardstark who's also a comedian, and I think she's done some DIY shows and things like that. It's a great show, and My Favorite Murder has inspired all of these superfans who call themselves murderinos. And there's groups all over the country and all over the world who get together regularly and talk about true crime, They have meetups. They raise money for um, organizations for victims' rights. So we wanted to find out more about Murderinos. And we found out that here in L.A., there is a group that has a meetup every last Monday of the month. It's called Macabre Mondays. And they meet at Golden Road Brewery in Glendale. So we met the founders of the L.A. group. And they were such cool women. So we caught up with them before a macabre Monday at Golden Road Brewery. And you'll hear noises of people getting ready for the event in the background. Here's our interview with them.
2: My name is Jasmine Rocha. I live in Lawndale, California. It's in the South Bay of uh, Los Angeles. So near the beach cities, Redondo Beach, Manhattan Beach, over there, grew up there, so.
3: My name is Bethany. I'm also known as the Inmate Whisperer, and I live in the San Fernando Valley. Mm -hmm.
1: So they tell us the history of the term Murderino.
2: Yeah, I guess it was a, a phrase coined by a fan of the My Favorite Murder podcast. Just started calling themselves Murderinos. It's basically people that are fans of true crime, watch it, Dateline, 2020, other podcasts. Not a fan of murder, just the stories, the intrigue about it. That's, I guess, what a murderino is. Just a fan of true crime. And about
1: what they do outside of being a murderino.
2: I work for a repossession company agency in Los Angeles. It's not as glamorous as the reality shows that you see of, like, repo guys or whatever. <laughs> but definitely, I get a couple of stories a month, and I text Bethany and, and Jessica what's going on mm. at my at my job, and they get a kick out of it, so.
3: I'm a true crime TV producer, so I create shows for, I work on shows for Oxygen, Discovery ID, you know.
2: Yeah. And the like, so she definitely has a cooler job than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
3: Sometimes you have some really fun. I stories. have some great stories. She had someone
2: whose first name was Lasagna, and I was like, Oh yeah! Anytime a crazy name comes
3: on, amazing. I had, I had
2: a Luke Skywalker at one point, and I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Um, lasagna was yeah. Yeah. To
3: be fair, it's a it's a solid name choice it's that I'm considering. I'm not. <laughs> I'm neither trying to get pregnant nor am I currently pregnant. But, but it's, it's on her top three. It's on my top three. Stromboli's there... number three. <laughs> Corn dog is number one. Hey.
1: <laughs> Bethany tells us about how she got her start in true crime television and how she got
3: the nickname the inmate whisperer. I got my start in tv uh, years ago on a tv show called prison break so i always joke with people that i've always kind of been in the dark side of tv um dark side of the moon and after the writer's strike i was offered a position on a documentary and that was about children who commit homicide so um, it was kind of before the explosion that true crime is now that was under the A&E banner since then I've worked on Cold Case Files that's back on A&E I've worked on Twisted Sisters which is Discovery ID's highest rated show in their history I've done an iteration of Snapped I've done Three Days to Live for Oxygen pretty much no everything. the
2: the Zodiac on the history oh channel. that's it yeah I did the Hunt for the Zodiac on the history channel thank you yeah, because Bethany knows who the Zodiac is and won't tell me you're gonna Get me harmed, (laughs) named. Never mind. She doesn't know who the zodiac is. (laughs) (laughs) I just tease her. (laughs) What do you know? know? (laughs) Step out of the shadows. (laughs) (laughs)
3: But through that, I've talked to. That's. I did a show declassified for CNN. And that's how I got the nickname, The Inmate Whisperer, because I had been given this note and I had to reach out to Saddam Hussein's weapon supplier. And so I did. And then afterwards, I got like the note back and the network had like completely moved on and forgotten because prison mail takes so long. And mm-hmm. all the producers were like, oh, you're the inmate whisperer. So it stuck and mm-hmm. Mary Claire profiled me. So I've talked to a bunch of people. I've talked to Manson's right-hand man, Bruce Davis. I've talked to like a a, a plethora of people. And I personally think that's the most interesting people to speak to because I want to understand like, how did you get here? Like how, and how do we, how do I identify this in my own life and not let it happen Mm -hmm. again? So. Bethany also has a podcast which you should listen to. My producing partner Adriana and I uh, created a show called The Pros and Cons. We were formerly the Queens of Crime. We wanted to be non-gendered, and we also did want to kind of help include the con to the pro, so to speak. You know, so we have FBI agents and you know forensic experts and other producers that we've worked with. And then we've recently started to include um, the inmate's perspective. So we had David Heiserman, who's done 20, who did 24 years in and out. He says he did, he was a lifer on the layaway plan, like he'd be in for six, out for a few months back in. And we had Kyle Holbert, who has a very, very famous case out in Virginia. So it's all about the checks and balances. Mm -hmm. We asked how the LA group started and what meetings are like. Jessica, who isn't here, she actually created the My Favorite Murder LA group, Mm -hmm. and then I took the initiative, because there was only like a hundred members at that time, Mm -hmm. to do this meetup, and I picked El Coyote, which is the restaurant that um, Sharon Tate had her last meal, and I kind of, yeah, I was like, okay, like, it's got this historic, you know, context, it's kind of got this true crime
2: vibe. It has good food as well. Excellent food. Excellent margaritas on point. She and
3: like literally five minutes before, I was like, oh my god, like who the fuck is gonna come? Can I say that? Yeah. Who's gonna come to this? Oh yeah, I
2: was a nervous wreck. I was I was coming by myself, N- don't know any of these people. Don't they're all they all are on the same page, and I'm sure everyone has it in the back of their minds, like, what if I'm gonna meet someone that's gonna kill me? Yeah. <laughs> like you're meeting complete strangers, and the only thing you have in common is that you live in the general LA area and you mm-hmm. listen to my favorite murder, and that's
3: so and I started listening to my favorite murder because I was working on a true crime show producing it and someone said hey have you heard of this podcast there's a couple of episodes out and they kind of talk the way we do in our room like it sounds they're like they don't get the facts right and whatever but it seems like just a couple of friends talking about a case So we gave it a listen, and then I planned that event. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we had a good turnout, maybe like 20, 25 people. And from there, Jessica added us mm-hmm. as admin. And since then, like, my career's kind of grown mm-hmm. and developed. And to, and so I'm not as involved as I was. And I think a big, the biggest shift is that, you know, they're the consumers of the content I create. So they're more... Peers than fans, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there, that's a big distinction I think
2: to make. So yeah, yeah. Uh, we were really clever with our our meetup names. We did um, was it no martinis, and, mortician and martinis or something? Mortician and martinis. <laughs> we had
3: um, a mar- mortician come and talk about it and talk about cases mm-hmm. she's worked on and how she's been deputized to be, like, a coroner, I think a it A coroner, was. Or something like that, yeah. So, and that, then mm-hmm. Golden Road approached us a few months ago and said, hey, we want to kind of expand into the, the true crime genre. And we are like, I don't, like, you're going to make a true crime-centric beer? Or <laughs> yeah. where are we going with this? So we've started Macabre Mondays, mm-hmm. and it's been really great. We have some really exciting people. We're in talks with some really big, notable shows mm-hmm. to have some talent come we've had the co-executive producer of i'll be gone in the dark and he was also michelle mcnamara's researcher so we have some pretty highbrow people coming and then we also have people who just are fans and want to kind of get maybe they're new to the city and Mm -hmm. this is a way for them to kind of get to know someone as well so we we try to keep it as inclusive as possible and
2: very casual like like today's today's we're just doing hometown murders we have a sign-up sheet if anybody wants to you know come up and talk about what they what they um a murder that they grew up hearing about or in their hometown even great and you know the room's such a a big room that anyone could walk around and you know get to know each other and i guess at the end of the day that's basically it how many we have over 3,000
3: yeah. in the My Favorite Murder LA page, but mm-hmm. then when you broaden that to other true crime groups, like Murderish has over 1,000 people, mm-hmm. and she's a local true crime podcaster. She's mm-hmm. done really well for herself, and you look at, you know, our group, the pros and cons, you mm-hmm. look at, you know, a plethora of others, you know, it's a really wide range of, of tastes, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, we've found that even on, like, people who are in the group, they like true crime. They don't necessarily listen to my favorite murder, but they were like, "Oh, I found my tribe! Like, here you are." Yeah. So, yeah, and we're like, "Cool, come on board, yeah, come hang out, <laughs> welcome to the party." Hey. And last time we were here, you
1: guys were raising money. Do you usually raise money for stuff?
3: We're trying to. So May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and so we were hoping to give a portion of all proceeds back to NAMI, which is the National Mental Health Mm -hmm. Awareness Organization. Last month in April, it was to CATS, the Center for Assault Treatment Services, because April is kind of Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. I mean, every day and every month should be that, but there you go. (laughs) So we do, it's part of the kind of philanthropic mindset
2: you know, I'm, I love different other fan bases. You know, I love Walking Dead, other pop culture mm-hmm. things. And there are fan bases that do that. And there are fan bases that do give back. But I feel like murderinos or true crime fans, what they do is they're fans of the stories of it. And they want to give back because it's real people. Real, real, yeah. real uh, things happen to these people and they're horrific and stuff. I think part of the
3: way is that a lot of mental health issues, mm-hmm. addiction issues, can play significant roles in these crimes and as opposed to just simply consuming the content that's been created for them or kind of, you know, relishing in this macabre world, it's a way to kind of actually put your money where your mouth is and and hope for and a better help, change. Yeah, actually
2: help. To try yeah. to change it. I mean, so. a lot of people do it by giving to Mariska Hargitay's yeah, foundation and, and the backlog and the back and the backlog. And um, because a lot of the stories that we hear about, it's a woman or anyone gets gets raped, they get murdered. That's it, and no one catches the rapist or the murderer because no one's testing these cases, these yeah. uh, rape kits. If we could put money into trying to help end that mm-hmm. we could get people all and I think there's been cases where they test they finally after many many years they finally test these rape kids and you're realizing oh it was a serial rapist it was mm-hmm. a serial killer if we only had the resources to do that and put priority in that we mm-hmm. would have it's a lot of would have's but at least we're doing something about it now.
3: And and I think it serves a point that not everyone is simply interested in just, like, murder and kind of these closed cases. There are people who are interested in the wrongfully convicted people, like, wrongful confessions. You know, it's true crime spans everything. It's not a one-size-fits-all, you know, onesie that you put on and enjoy. You know, I think people who love you know dateline and snapped will love the confession tapes just as much on on netflix and that's why
2: it's a genre that's growing in in number it's grown in popularity a lot of people are less afraid to be like oh i don't want because it was taboo before it's not anymore yeah. i think also that with the you know the birth
3: of in, the internet there was kind of the homogenization of cultures and countries you know, and there was this kind of blending. and But then it also provided great exposure to other cultures, to other countries, to other... Thoughts and mindsets, and so you 'll what I have found through my work is that I get exposed to a myriad of thoughts and of opinions and of processes or processes. I was trying to sound smart processes processes Canadian. Canadian. <laughs> I mean. processes just shout out to the Canadians there um. and um, it helps because it it keeps you out of your echo chamber and while you may be talking to someone who agrees with you, like, you know, I'm here with Jasmine, mm-hmm. and she might see eye to eye with me on things, but because of her upbringing, I still get a different cultural flavor, mm-hmm. and the same for her, by so person. it's this kind of cross-pollination as well.
1: Women, by far, are the biggest consumers of true crime. We asked why true crime so popular among women.
3: There's always been a fascination in true crime and you've seen it in both the scripted and non-scripted genres. Mm -hmm. You know, going back to the 90s with Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted. And I think for a lot of people, especially women, they want to watch these shows and to be able to say, what happened to her? What did she do to have that transpire in her life so I don't make the same mistakes? But I think it's also being inside on a cold rainy day and looking out at the storm and knowing the storm isn't going to get you but you can still witness the storm that's mm-hmm. what i think it is so
2: yeah it's like growing up with a scary story everybody likes a scary story everyone likes a monster and you and you grow up you know at least for mexican heritage like um La Llorona. like oh, yeah. this lady is going to come and get you if you're not good like, it's things to scare you at night, but you know it's never, you know in the back of your head it's not going to happen. Right. I think that's, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I do. So, but there's real-life monsters out there, and people, or at least I do, is like, what, going off What of Bethany says, what can I do to protect myself? You know, and then, but then sometimes you just have to realize life is random, and, you know, yeah. sometimes you're doing everything right, and things go wrong.
1: My Favorite Murder invites listeners to send in their hometown murders, which are then read on the show. So we asked Jasmine and Bethany to tell their hometown murders.
2: Like I mentioned, I work for a repossession agency. Just general repossession. When you repossess a car, we're required by law to process the vehicle, which means take out the property, make an inventory list, yada, yada. Uh, one of our field agents repossessed a late model um, BMW from a like a really rick and dink, motel in Burbank, brought it to the lot, and then uh, my friend uh, got me the job, started cleaning it out, and found a pistol underneath the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and he has his gloves on because the last time he handled uh, a firearm, because we get a lot of them, um, he had to go to the police station and do prints and DNA and touch DNA because, you know, you never know what they're involved in. The local PD picked up the, the pistol and about an hour later, we had LAPD detectives at our door. Walked in. Apparently, the vehicle uh, was registered to a gentleman that uh, is, was suspected in a homicide the night before. So basically, mm-hmm. the same night we picked up the vehicle. Yes. Yeah. And then uh, around the same time, my friend came back in and says, "Oh, I found the shotgun in the in the trunk as well." She's so like, "Great." So. LAPD takes the shotgun PD has the, the the pistol so they're gonna go over there and grab it I had talked to the guy about 30 minutes prior to LAPD to set up an appointment for him to come in and pick up his property oh so I had talked to him set it up I was like all right we'll see you here next day oh, Wow. so they're like all right well if we don't pick him up t- tonight we'll be back tomorrow around the same time just to get him I was like okay please get him I don't want this my preference would be for you to get him first please yeah prior to him coming so they come um, to the next morning and I'm ready for it I love true crime was like super amped for some reason even Uh though you know death might be calling I don't know if this guy is loaded (laughs) with other weapons on him and they come they want the rest of the property they had picked them up that night and arrested him and another person for a a homicide and they told us what happened which was basically he was getting evicted from his apartment, and the handyman had let him in. Um, Landlord says, fine, let him in to take his stuff. So handyman lets him in, was going to come back later in the day to lock it back up, and mm-hmm. him and his friend that was his roommate bribed them with some really expensive vodka to come in to help. They had laid plastic down, looked like they were packing, and when he walked in, they shot him. Wow. And so when we found out that when me and my friend heard about that incident with the plastic, he straight up was like, so he dextered him on, on plastic? Yeah. They just dextered him? Well, and, and the we... entire time we're like, but what?
3: But, yeah. And
2: I, I just, I, I've only seen one article on it in LA Times, which is like the crime report.
3: Yeah, sure. And
2: provided the name of the gentleman. I have it here, I think. It's...
3: Do you know if he's been convicted?
2: Not yet. His next court day is actually this month on the 30th. Because I looked them up on the <laughs> on the prisoner um, the thing. Because I was like, I remember his name, but I don't know where he's at, and I wanted to remember. Is he at
3: Men's Central or at he's in um,
2: Van Van Nuys, Van Nuys? Central Jail. Gail? Yeah. Um, the gentleman that passed away, uh, that was murdered, was Ricardo, Bonreges Morales Mejia. He was wow. fifty-two years old. Wow. Yeah. What a really unfortunate. And it was really like random. Like they were pissed. And his roommate's like, let's, well, let's just kill this guy. Lured him in with some, some alcohol, had plastic wrapped up, and, and shot him. And apparently they panicked. I was like, you're going to panic, but you planned it. Yeah. And then they stole his truck, and then one of them, the one, the registered owner of the BMW, took his car with the weapons oh. and hid in a motel. And that's when our guy just went, got a camera hit on the license plate, picked up his car, and took off. Yeah.
3: So I grew up in the UK and France, and there's a couple of stories in the UK that have always stood out to me. As a child growing up, I became really uh, interested in the Holly and Jessica case. It's of these two schoolgirls who were kind, you know, in this small village, and they went missing. And of course, it made the national news. Everyone was out looking for them. Like, where could they have gone? And could they have fallen over in a field? Could they have fall? you know, could something have happened? And the perpetrator ended up being someone who had actually worked at a school. And it was just a really, really upsetting uh, situation. And I think it's something that kind of gripped the nation. I would say it's very it is to the UK kind of what poly class is here Mm. where it changed people's perspective it changed people's dynamics and understanding and then here there's also the Nick Markowitz case which is the Alpha Dog case it's a pretty famous case and that's here in the San Fernando Valley so I would say that's probably my other hometown murder Mm so there was a big a movie made with Emile Hirsch and Justin Timberlake in the mid I call it the noughties, the Mm mid-noughties. But Nick Markowitz was a young high schooler here in the Valley, and he was picked up by a local drug dealer, Jesse James Hollywood. And they kept him, they kind of kept him drugged in Santa Barbara for a few days. And when Jesse James Hollywood realized he'd technically, under the legal term, kidnapped him, panicked and had him killed... So several people served significant time. The shooter, Ryan, is on death row in San Quentin. Jesse James actually fled to Brazil, and he was on the run for about nine years. He was on the FBI's Most Wanted list. The other people who were in the car at the time, they ended up making, I think, a plea deal for about nine or ten years, and they're out, and they're actually living really fulfilled, healthy lives, which... You know, it's great given what's kind of transpired. But I know Jesse James Hollywood kind of, he, from what other inmates have told me, he positions himself as this like celebrity inmate, which he kind of is because his case is so well known, but he kind of gets himself in trouble in that way too. So, you know, I can't can't help but uh, not care how he's being treated on the yard.
1: Bethany and Jasmine reflect what it's meant to be part of a murderino group.
3: With true crime, you know, it runs the gamut, you know, from people who are super conservative to people who are super liberal to people, you know, whose voices aren't necessarily heard. Like, that's something we try to do is to include perspectives that other people don't don't think of. So mm-hmm. if you're a fan of the genre, and perhaps you're not seeing stories that are reflective of your community you should reach out to the podcast or you should reach out to people and let them know like hey there was this weird story that no one ever really covered because that's how you know I think people begin to broaden their own personal horizons
2: Mm -hmm. yeah and I think at least for being a murderino or being a fan of true crime if you're able to find a community there are genuine friendships that are being made in these communities Absolutely. I mean three years ago I didn't know her I didn't know Bethany. I didn't but now know we, Jessica.
3: We text daily, and I
2: uh, daily. <laughs> but like, I I keep telling them anytime that bring, when we bring up this community, is like there would have been no way that I will ever have crossed paths with Bethany or with Jessica or with our friend Carolyn or any yeah. of these people. It was because one night. Ooh, Jessica saw that all these other cities are having smaller groups and they're having meetups and was like I want that too yeah even though I'm nervous and I have anxiety I want that I was feeling the same way she beat me to it to creating this space. three margaritas really took the oh for to me
3: <laughs> margaritas and just, really just
2: food and just and I don't think half the time we weren't talking about your crime. we were just getting to know each other
1: I know for me, margaritas are always great.
0: (laughs) So April, you know, I'm not a huge fan of true crime. In fact, I find it, um, pretty scary a little bit. It causes me some anxiety, but what I found about these meetings and also about meeting both Bethany and Jasmine, um, is so empowering for the women involved. And I loved that when we were at the meetups, they, um, started off with letting us know if it was going to include triggering um, imagery or or some of the things that they were going to talk on might trigger and be emotional and so people had the freedom to leave if something got a little bit too much Uh, i thought it was so much more supportive than i would expect because i only think of the scary part for me (laughs) and it was really cool to learn that
1: yeah and i think these podcasts like my favorite murder crime junkie Um, there's a couple of others that really sort of provide a place for women to listen to these stories, but also create a sense of community and a place of understanding. I think the issue of mental health is such a big part of it as well. So a lot of the hosts are very open about their own issues with mental health, their own issues with anxiety, their own issues with trying to be the nice girl and how do you you know, tell a guy to back off if you're feeling scared or uncomfortable. And so it is a really empowering group. I thought it was really cool at the meetings that Bethany and Jasmine go around the room and introduce themselves to everyone. Uh, You know, that, that made it very personal. And also I could see for anybody who was there by themselves, it made them feel welcome. So I really appreciated that as well. So if you're thinking about going to any of these meetups, just to kind of check it out and see, I, I would really recommend it. It was really, really, it, it's odd to say it was fun, but it was fun.
0: Yeah. I mean, I found it, dare I say, enlightening. <laughs> I mean, it just, it certainly gave me understanding. I know that you're a big fan of true crime and, and it was something that you didn't talk to a lot of people about, but there's so much about the psychology and also knowing how to protect yourself. That's really um, important. And you know, full disclosure, I find cults fascinating, which could be very scar- scary for a lot of people. So I guess we all have our our levels. <laughs> of, yeah. of what's intimidating or scary. And going there as someone who wasn't part of the group or even a devout listener of any of those podcasts, it, it was really welcoming. And, you know, here's my woo-woo-ness, but it, it just had a good energy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it really did. So why do you think more women are fans of true
0: crime? I mean, this is just a pure hypothesis because it's not, it's not necessarily my jam, but I think that the women that I've met seem to feel like it, information gives them some knowledge and power, makes them feel safer to know what's out there. And then also like, how can I um, prepare myself? And yes, some crimes are random as all get out. So you're never going to be able to prepare yourself. But I see that a lot of women, it's kind of like take back the night situation of, I'm going to feel good about it. Because the truth is, as a woman, you can't walk alone at night and feel good and feel safe. There are things that you just move through this world knowing. Like, sometimes it's scary to not give your number to a guy, or sometimes it's scary to not say hi. Um, So you smile and giggle and act meek and demure. And I think that this safety in numbers um, from the community aspect of it is also probably really powerful.
1: Yeah, because even if you're out by yourself, you can kind of like uh, draw upon the energy of the whole group. And, and a lot of times um, I've heard on My Favorite Murder and other podcasts, um, people will write in and talk about their experiences of fighting back or their experiences of telling someone, you know. That My Favorite Murder has this whole thing called fuck politeness. And so uh, a lot of women have written in saying, I fucked politeness and told a guy to get the fuck away from me. And probably saved myself from getting murdered. So I do think that there is something about yeah, knowledge is power, and the community is empowerment.
0: Have you? Have you ever felt like you were in a moment where you, with a stranger, where you needed to fuck politeness or get yourself out of a situation?
1: Yeah, for sure, A, a bunch of times. But but one in particular, I used to live in Hollywood, and my parking lot uh, for my apartment was like a block away from the apartment and this was right off Hollywood Boulevard when it wasn't uh, you know a shopping mall and it was still pretty shitty and so this was in the 90s and uh, I came home one night it was winter time so I had on a big black trench coat and black boots and so I would always do this when I got out of the car I would lock up my car and then my parking lot was huge it was only one story but it was big so it was like a long walk to the gate to get out so I I put on my I put my trench coat up over my head so that I'd look like a weirdo and then I walked like really funny with a really funny walk and some dude was behind me this one night and I could tell and I had had a really bad day I I don't know I was frustrated with school and work and and this guy was coming up behind me and I turned around and I was like dude don't even fucking think about it and he was like I'm sorry ma'am I'm sorry and walked away and so i think yeah. i
0: was gonna get mugged but yeah I, was... I, um great good job <laughs> <laughs> i actually was mugged a couple times once at an atm um at the point of a serrated steak knife so something that oh could do God. damage but not like I, I it was it was weird and um, still scary that like you scary. don't. i, I mean yeah. yeah and I was an art major and I ended up going to talk to the cop and getting the imagery from the ATM of the guy coming up behind me and i um, holding me with his arm around my neck and um, asking for it I was also an art major again just to repeat I had 20 bucks in the um, bank so he asked me to get out all my money that's what he got um but that was much better than the other time I got mugged or not even mugged, just beat down. Well, no, they did take my wallet, but it was more to clearly be a beat down and literally kicked to the curb with boot prints on my forehead. And so I... Oh my God. So that was a couple of guys or... It was a group of people, um, maybe four or five. Like I was with a group of people too, a couple guys and a girl and everybody got scattered and cops drove by because this is in a bad neighborhood, and the people that were beating me up said, she's fine. Uh, weirdly, the metropolitan uh, bus drivers were the people that, that chased them off and got my, because one of my friends got on a bus. I was like, please come help my, my friend. So they chased these people off. But after that, I used to do a similar thing that you did. I'd pull my hoodie up and I'd light a cigarette and I'd hit my head as I was walking alone, if I ever had to be alone. And keep in mind, like that time I was with a group of people, but... Yeah. And then I just talked to myself really loud and people would cross the street to get away from me. (laughs) (laughs) That is a good, that is a good strategy. Oh my God. I can't believe was that, where was that? That was in Seattle and that was in Pioneer Town in the nineties. So it's a tourist trap, but also like just two blocks off. It's, it's pretty sketch. So as most tourist traps are.
1: So Rachel, do you have a I don't want to say a favorite, but do you have a hometown murder?
0: Yeah, so even though I am not a true crime fan, I am from the Northwest. So I grew up in a small, small town, about 25 minutes from one of the hometowns of one of the most popular, or I guess that's the wrong word, but certainly one of the most infamous serial killers, uh, Ted Bundy. And he went to high school with uh, my friend's mom and took her out on a date. But my friend's mom was a ginger, so she was safe. Oh, God. Yeah. And then I was always kind of fascinated. Um, I don't know if that's even the right word, but certainly always very aware of the Green River Killer. And he was active in my childhood. It was very much those two were the boogeymen of our growing up in the Northwest. My boogeyman was the Golden State
1: Killer uh, who, when I was growing up in Sacramento, was known as the East Area Rapist. And that name has always been terrifying to me. I used to walk home from school past one of the houses where he attacked a girl. Um, My mom was in her late 20s at the time, maybe mid to late 20s, and I was always really scared that he was going to break in and attack her. Um, my stepdad was pulled over once because he was wearing a stocking cap, and the East Area Rapist wore this uh, balaclava hat. I think that's how you say it. Uh, it's like a ski mask kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so they pulled him over, thinking maybe maybe it was him. I think he got pulled over
0: twice. Can I ask? Like this has always been one of those things, and because I'm not a true crime person, so when you're growing up, he's the East. Area East Bay? East Area Area Rapist. East Area Rapist. And now he's the Golden State Killer. How did they tie the two? How did they know that he was finally not only raping, not to minimize that, but also murdering? DNA. It was DNA. Interesting.
1: He was committing the rapes in Sacramento and then in the East Bay. And in the East Bay, they saved some DNA samples from that. And then there were some murders in uh, Ventura County and in Santa Barbara County. And so those were then, once, um, once um, DNA testing became a thing, they were able to link all of those
0: together. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. And pretty interesting that he had different hunting grounds.
1: Yeah, they're still trying to figure out exactly why that is and why he traveled so much and if it was a jo- and if it was a job he was traveling for or if it was family. He did live in LA for a bit. His second daughter was born here, I think. So, it's a weird story. I hope that we get to hear more, but he's been pretty quiet, I'm not saying much. So, and I don't know, uh, I've heard that you know, he may die before they ever get to trial because the case is so big and uh, include so many different jurisdictions. But when I was growing up too in the 70s, I, Northern California, like the Pacific Northwest, was just like a breeding ground of murderers and kidnappers and rapists. It just seemed like we were always fearful of being picked up by someone in a van and kidnapped. And, and there was a couple in Sacramento who were actually driving around in a van and they would go to malls and they would uh, pick up teenage girls and they would rape them and kill them. And they were the Galegos. And the husband went to jail. He's still in jail. And the wife went to jail for a bit. And she's now out and
0: actually lives across the street from a nurse that my mom works with. And then... Why is it always... I mean, were the, maybe their van wasn't. But was it always a white windowless van you guys were afraid of? Uh, white vans were a thing. But it was, there were also green vans oh. and shag carpeted vans with waterbeds in them. Well, yeah, but that was a whole different thing. <laughs> for us, it was always someone in a white van. Watch out for a white van. Yeah, I think that
1: probably became a thing, but for us it was kind of any van. Okay. I think white van was a thing. But but the whole, like, shag carpet in a van, waterbed, I think during the 70s turned from being a cool thing to being a super creepy pervert
0: uh, kidnapper kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't. I wouldn't say it was cool from the (laughs) get-go but certainly from perceived cool sure
1: I mean personally I think I would love to have a van with shag carpet and a waterbed that would be kind of fun but um anyway I had a waterbed as a kid
0: they're not great
1: they get so cold that was my biggest problem with them the heaters never worked and then you'd just be sleeping on this freezing cold plastic
0: thing yeah it was not it wasn't ideal come on people Yeah, that was a bad idea. I mean, I think we could sum up. Waterbeds are bad. Don't kill people. And finding people to feel strong with is pretty great.
1: I like that. Let's end on that. I'm April. And I'm Rachel. Thank you all for listening. And a big thanks to Jasmine and Bethany and all the murderinos out there. We'll have links on our website to the organizations mentioned in this episode, to Mariska Hardigay's Joyful Heart Foundation, and and the backlog. And we'll also post a link to Bethany's awesome podcast, The Pros and Cons. See you next time.
0: Bye.